Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. The 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China took place recently in Beijing and attracted global attention. But how much did we really hear about the meeting outcomes and their implications for China's future and New Zealand's engagement with China, leaving aside a couple of headlines which tended to dominate? I sat down with Jason Young to take a 30-minute deep dive into a range of Congress outcomes. Jason will be well known to many listeners as an Associate Professor in the School of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations at Victoria University of Wellington, and also Director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre there. Well, Jason, thank you very much for joining us on uh, this New Zealand China Council podcast. We've all been watching the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China over the last couple of weeks. And I guess from my perspective, I've been surprised to see the amount of focus in New Zealand, in media and general discussion about the Congress, but also to some extent um, a little discouraged by the very narrow band of issues that that have been discussed around the Congress. Uh, So I thought today would be a really good chance, obviously, to hear your views on on the main themes that that we have been focused on, but also to shine some light on parts of the Congress uh, that perhaps haven't had so much attention. So I guess I would be interested to hear your perspectives on that point. Uh, Do you feel that, I mean, I've been overseas for, I think, the last three Congresses, but do you feel that this year's Congress did get more attention in New Zealand than in the past? And, And if so, what were the main drivers for that? So thanks, Alistair. It's a great pleasure to be here um, today. I think you're right. This is basically the first time I've ever seen a party congress get such attention in New Zealand. In previous years, they've largely been ignored. And I guess that is a reflection that it's it's a party congress. It's not actually a state congress. Um, And so none of the key state positions are actually put in place there. I think it got so much attention in New Zealand this year and around the world because all of the focus was on whether or not or to what degree the current General Secretary Xi Jinping would consolidate his power within the party, whether or not he would stay on as General Secretary, um, and what would be the makeup of the um, Standing Committee of the Politburo. Yeah, I agree. And um, that particular point of whether Xi Jinping would go on for a third term, I don't think was ever in much doubt, or you'd have to be a brave person to have bet the other way. But I was very interested, if we start with those personnel issues, uh, I mean, it's like layers of an onion, isn't it? You've got the general secretary and then this core in a circle of seven Politburo standing committee members, and then a, a wider group of, and at this time, 24 Politburo members, and then you know, roughly, I think, 200 or so um, central committee members. So it's leading into the very inner core. And for the standing committee, these seven senior positions, one of the websites I follow had a like a fantasy football league of who could guess who the appointments were going to be. And I saw the results this morning. There were a thousand entries and no one picked correctly. From your perspective, were there surprises and how do you assess the overall appointments of those very important senior party leaders around Xi Jinping? Yeah, I think that it's really telling that nobody, out of a thousand people that that entered into that fantasy football league trying to pick the composition of the standing committee of the Politburo, that that nobody could actually get the right answer. I mean, that's really a reflection of 
of how closed and and quite secretive these types of meetings and the makeup of the Chinese Communist Party is. Um, and you know, to some degree, a lot of political parties are like that. Uh, I think that what surprised me was not so much uh, Xi Jinping taking a third term. I think you're right that that most of the sort of direction was that he would stay on, particularly after last year with the historical resolution um, and also being appointed as sort of the core of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but what surprised me was just how many of the more, I guess, economically reform-minded people within the Politburo were pushed out and replaced by others. Um, and so, you know, obviously Li Keqiang um, had done his two terms and he moved on. But then there's a whole number range of other really important reformists uh, within the political party, uh, not, not so much within the standing committee of the Politburo, but people like Liu He, Yi Gang, the governor of the People's Bank of China, Guo Xuqing. Uh, these type of people within the party have been moved on. And then the people that have been moved in to replace him the people who step down from the standing committee are are really the link that brings them all together is their previous history of working with Xi Jinping. And so I think that that in some ways is is a bit of a concern to see such a consolidation of one leader's power within the Politburo. Mm. Yes, um, I noticed a comment from Willie Lamb, who's a very experienced and respected commentator over many years commenting that it was an abnormally lopsided victory mm. for one faction of the party. But I guess I've been looking um, at the appointments because some of these names I didn't know so well myself. And when you look into the background of someone like Li Jiang, who seems to be emerging as a possible uh, premier or prime minister to replace uh, Li Keqiang as the number two name in, in the standing committee, you know, he's party secretary of Shanghai, and Shanghai's had its problems this year, and then that in itself is, is an interesting reflection. But uh, he's also, you know, himself got a really strong business and technology background. He has an MBA from Hong Kong Polytechnic University. He's worked with a lot of foreign and, and local technology companies over the years in his various official roles. So, I mean, the glass half full part of me uh, would like to think that there's also still some real dynamism in that top leadership, in addition to the point that many people have pointed out that, um, as I guess any leader does, you, you surround yourself with people that you trust. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, you know, you see that in a lot of these sort of really high appointments within the Chinese Communist Party is that th these people have had a long history uh, in all sorts of different appointments. Um, Li Chang in particular um, with Shanghai. I mean, Shanghai is a very open, international, dynamic city, and it certainly still managed to be at the sort of the cutting edge of reform in China. Um, or even someone like um, Tai Chi, who's been the party secretary of Beijing, also has a long history of working in that area. I guess we're kind of seeing two different types of arguments coming out in the international media. One is that these people have been appointed because of their ties and their loyalties working with Xi Jinping. And therefore, it's a it's not a good sign because it sort of goes back to the old days of the Communist Party, where a leader like Mao Zedong would surround himself with people not based on their meritocracy or their ability to do the job, um, but rather he would surround himself with people who were either loyal to him or very weak coalitions so that he could dominate. That theme has become very, very strong in the international media looking at this this current Politburo. But then on the other hand, if you, as you just did, look through the different experiences of these people, there is every potential that 
you know, some of them or even somebody like um, Li Xi could could emerge um, through his experience as a Guangdong Party chief as one of the key proponents of maintaining uh, reform and opening in China. Um, and we're yet to see. You mentioned Li Keqiang's departure, obviously, because he's no longer in a senior role in the party. That, of course, automatically counts him out from having any senior role in government going forward. So he's effectively exited the scene. What do you think is Li Keqiang's legacy as a party leader from, from your perspective after these last um, 10 years? Mm, yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the last quotes he was reported on in the media from him was this idea that the waters of the Yellow and Yangtze River won't flow backwards. So basically, he's sort of seen him, his role within the party as to continue that policy of reform and opening and to, I guess, balance out some of those different contested positions within the party, um, sometimes being a bit more ideological or a bit more communist or socialist, um, and then the other side of the party being a bit more open and being a bit more for economic reform and continued that type of continued economic development. So I think his legacy would be that over the last 10 years, he has really sort of balanced out some of the policies within China to keep China on that reform and opening track. Mm. Well, it would be very interesting to see as we go forward. I mean, the you know, the party Congress doesn't set government policies, as as you well know, but it does, I guess, set the direction and, and the um, parameters for the government from next year to echo and mirror uh, what was discussed at the Congress. I've attempted valiantly to work through some of the large documents. Uh, I mean, Xi Jinping presented a two-hour um, oration, which was his work report to the Congress. The Congress then amended its, the party constitution far more than I thought it would. I, I assumed its constitution was a set of rules about membership and things, but it's really more of an environment scan and a, and a mission statement that, that seems to evolve quite a lot every five years. Uh, and then we had a, a final resolution at the end of the Congress and, and Xi Jinping's own final comments. So looking um, across all of that, what was your uh, general sense on, on some of the key themes beyond the people and looking at the issues that you saw coming out? Was there anything that surprised you or anything that reassured you about uh, China's future directions? Um, in terms, we'll start with the reassurances. I thought it was uh, in some ways quite a consistent approach and you know the consistency that we've seen over the last 10 years. So it's certainly the trying to present a stable, secure, development-focused China to the world, tried to allay some, some fears um, about the rise of China that many international countries are having or about the approach that they have to the economy. And so in that sense, I think there was a lot of sort of trying to present China as being on a consistent, stable um, trajectory, so that not lurching to the left or lurching to the right, um, which I think is, is positive. Um, there were a few things that that stuck out for me. I think there was the first time that they used the phrase Chinese style modernization, um, which was quite interesting uh, in the sense, and it really goes with this sort of view that China is on its own path now, that it's sort of learned from the West and learned from other countries. It's modernizing, but it's modernizing in a very Chinese way. Um, and it's a bit you know, abstract, that type of idea and that type of concept, but I think it really does point to 
sort of ideas that that China might be trying new types of policies and programs going into the future. And of course, it also um, focuses on this more stronger defense of China's own political system, which has been under increasing criticism from a number of countries over the years. Um, and on that note, uh, we, we saw that the two upholds became part of the party constitution. So the two upholds, the Liangge Weihu, uh, very similar to the two establishments, uh, which is the Liangge Chueli, which which is basically the idea that Xi Jinping has core status. And so we need to uphold the core status of Xi Jinping within the party and uphold the authority and centralized leadership of the party center. So so again, that's, that's sort of a continuity. Um, and that continuity is very much that the Chinese Communist Party sees itself as the long-term governance structure of China. Uh, a few other themes that came through for me, there was a really strong focus on technology, and in particular technology being one of the engines for economic growth and rejuvenation of the nation. So this this idea that particularly uh, now facing some headwinds with economic and political relationships with advanced economies, that China needs to double down on investing in research and technology as a way of driving sort of high quality advanced economic growth. Also on the economy, I thought it was interesting that there is a sort of a recognition that the growth model that sustained China's rapid economic growth and development has really run its course and sort of repeating some of Wen Jiabao's um, ideas about things being unsustainable economic model, the, the unbalances within the economy. Uh, common prosperity as an idea was used quite a lot. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what that actually means in terms of economic policy going forward, particularly next year at the National People's Congress. Could it mean higher taxes or higher income taxes? Are we likely to see more redistributive policies are uh, we likely to see the state try to invest more in social welfare systems? Are we likely to see, which we saw a little bit last year, some more crackdowns on um, what could be seen as excessive wealth or um, sort of companies getting too big, higher income tax, et cetera, et cetera. Um, be really interesting to see where that goes. And then the, the last two things, the first is that the national security idea became through quite strong. Uh, so there was a bigger focus on China being more stable and trying to protect its own regime stability, and also that the national security environment had deteriorated. And then lastly, there was a focus on more, I guess, there was more of an ideological focus than I think I've seen in previous years, and on, you know, language around, you know, struggling and waging struggles um, and continuing to struggle on. Um, and then just lastly, there was also no real mention of intraparty democracy, uh, which had been one of those themes um, over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so that was quite a surprise to see that gone. Mm. No, thanks. That was um, a really comprehensive overview. I picked up most of those themes as well. I mean, I think, I mean, the focus on doing things a Chinese way, it has been around, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics has, has been a, a phrase um, used a lot, for example. But certainly, the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era and this sort of modern and rejuvenated China did emerge as a core goal for the future. I certainly 
picked up the focus on common prosperity and almost a sense in a lot of what you've been saying of going back to the party's roots, you know, this idea of common prosperity and equitable distribution of wealth, I guess, is a central tenet of where the party came from. To get rich is glorious, but to get too rich is is not really in favour anymore, perhaps. And I will also be interested to see how that plays out. Um, Technology, I mean, again, China has prioritised innovation over the last decade or so, and I guess technology and, and tech development is a strong one aspect of innovation that, that has been a focus. Uh, and I guess when you, you look at what is happening with the great decoupling at the moment, then all signs point to China continuing full steam ahead to uh, develop self-sufficiency in a number of core areas. And so I, I wasn't surprised to see tech and, and innovation generally in there. I guess one area that um, you didn't cover, but I, I saw as very promising was the focus on green development and references all the way through to harmony with nature, but also, you know, steps that must be taken for China to achieve its two great carbon goals, uh, peak um, carbon emissions and and carbon neutrality by 2060. Uh, So I was encouraged by that, I guess. So as I said before, it really did seem to be a bit of an environment scan for some of those key themes that China's going to be focused for the time to come. The wider environment also interested me, and I think a lot of commentators have pointed to this, that in in previous similar documents and meetings, you know, the party has spoken about a a moment for development, peace and development and strategic opportunity. Mm. But this time there were references all the way through to, you know, choppy waters and storm clouds brewing. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, it was definitely more focused on risks and challenges as well as opportunities. From what you saw reading the key documents and so on, did you get the sense that China is hunkering down for tougher times ahead? I also got the sense that that focus was missing, that idea that that it was a period of strategic opportunity. That was just basically not part of the, the narrative anymore. That era had finished um, and that it was uh, tougher times for China and that the strategic environment had deteriorated. I'm not sure though, it means that China will hunker down for to weather that. I think if we like have a, a continuum where we say that you know China is very open, it's trying to integrate as much as possible with the international community. Um, and at the other end, we go all the way back to the 50s and 60s, where where China was was basically sort of Fongbi was um, it was closed off from particular Western countries. I think we're likely to see something more in the middle about that its engagement with the international community will be a bit more managed. And I think that partly that's defensive and partly that's a recognition that there are challenges that it has with a number of different relationships. You've already mentioned tech. Uh, We've seen the CHIPS Act um, from the United States. That means that if China wants to develop that area, then it will need to rely on its own resources and rely on its own self-sufficiency. Um, but then there's also um, a whole range of other areas where, where there's political issues uh, that China has with a number of countries. And so you can expect that it will try to focus the types of international relationships that it has and economic relations in a way that promote some of those challenges, which you were mentioning before, that it has in its own domestic economy. And, you know, policy like dual circulation, which, you know, classic Chinese policy, it's, it's quite abstract and hard to 
think about what it actually really means. But conceptually, it's basically the idea that uh, that there are two circulations. One is the international global economy, and then there's the Chinese domestic economy. Um, and so that the role of the government is actually to manage the interlinkages between the domestic economy and the international economy so that it benefits the Chinese domestic economy. Uh, and in particular, some of the challenges around inequality, which is still hugely problematic in China, unbalanced growth between the West and the Eastern regions, uh, some of those environmental issues, which you're mentioning before, and I, I think you're right, it's really positive to see that they are still given high priority within uh, statements. Um, and then the bigger challenge that China has, perhaps the biggest challenge, is to move up the value chain in terms of the types of manufacturing and types of production that it's doing, which has become a lot more challenging now that with things like the CHIPS Act and the tension between China and a lot of Western economies. Mm. Well, it's really good to hear your thoughts on dual circulation economy because there has been you know, some interpretation that this is China trying to become self-sufficient and, and not uh, needing to engage so much externally. But a colleague of mine pointed out a quote by Xi Jinping at the, in his closing remarks at the end of the Congress, and he made a point of saying that just as China cannot develop in isolation from the world, the world needs China for its development. China will open its door ever wider and will be steadfast in deepening reform and, and opening up. So um, hopefully they're not just words. I also feel very optimistic that China will continue to engage with New Zealand and continue to engage with other countries going forward. Just on that, I think um, Jorg uh, Wattle, who's the head of the European Chamber of Commerce in, um, in China, uh, he recently gave a quote to the New York Times where he said that um, people always talk about China as a big market. No, China is a huge economy with a small accessible market. So even today, you know, the Chinese market, the engagement with the international economy is, is managed. And I think it would be really surprising to see it close off completely and it would be shooting itself in the foot. What worries me, though, is that the geopolitical tensions mean that the potential for China to open even more and to have a more integrated global economy um, seem to be lessening at the moment. Um, thanks, Jason, for those thoughts. I have two quick, well, they probably won't be quick because they're both really interesting topics, but I, I think um, they're very topical issues that, that were covered at the Congress, and I'd love to hear your views on them. The first is obviously China's approach to COVID. Uh, and COVID management. There was a feeling in the lead up to the Congress that somehow once we got through this important watershed meeting that, that somehow uh, things would start to loosen up. Um, people have interpreted what was said at the Congress as indicating that that won't be happening or at least happening anytime soon. Were you as disappointed as, as others, um, given, you know, there's so many New Zealanders, uh, whether they have family and friends in China or they're doing business with China, they want to go to study in China or receive Chinese tourists, um, hoping for opening up. What are your views now, having heard what was said? Do you think it's just delayed it a bit or, or do you think, uh, again, China's in for the long haul here? Well, I think on a positive note, the work reports and the discussions at the Congress did not go out of its way to labor the point about China's dynamic zero COVID policy or to say that there was victory in the people's war that was, or to point out that China's done so much better than a lot of other countries in terms of COVID. In fact, it was very much played down. So it wasn't a big focus. So I think in that sense, that's a good indication that there is now more space for policy evolution. 
I don't know when that would happen. I haven't seen any indicator indications of that, but I would hope that perhaps following the National People's Congress or the Lianghui with the Chinese Political People Consultative Conference uh, at the same time, following that, maybe there could be um, some sort of like sort of New Zealand style opening and having to, to live with COVID. I think the problem that China has with COVID is that if you remember in New Zealand, when, when we opened the borders and we relaxed a lot of our protections against COVID, there was this big run on the hospitals and it put a lot of pressure on, on the hospital system who responded really, really, really well. But in China, even though it is the second largest economy in the world, it is still in some ways a developing nation. And particularly in poorer parts of China, um, the healthcare system, I would argue, doesn't have the capacity to deal with that kind of run on the hospitals. Um, and then the, the other issue is, of course, that the vaccination rates, particularly in elderly people, are perhaps not yet at the point where they would need to be able to shift to that new type of COVID strategy. So so I guess I'm, I would suggest I'm, in the medium term, I'm quite confident that there will be a policy evolution. You know, we're all very keen to have the opportunity to, to return to China, but I haven't seen any indication of when that will happen. Yeah, well, you're definitely not alone in that. I, I, um, I've been optimistically saying to people that while the, the policy itself is likely to remain on the books uh, for some time, implementation of it may loosen. Uh, and again, as you say, we could see pilot. You know, China, as you know, is extremely good at, at testing policy changes in, in selected cities or selected provinces. Uh, and as we all know, they can certainly ring fence those areas if they really want to do a true test and, and see what the impacts on, on the health system will be. But like you, uh, yes, I'm, I'm aware it's now leading into winter. Uh, then, then we have um, Chinese New Year, which is sort of traditionally a period of huge travel, and that, that's a big issue, uh, followed, as you say, by these two very important political meetings in March next year, the Lianghui. So uh, yeah, watch the space with fingers crossed. The last issue, Jason, that I think again, was covered quite strongly by media in New Zealand and globally, was the, the way that Taiwan was discussed by Xi Jinping and, and uh, in the Congress. There was a great focus on China not ruling out the use of force in terms of its desire to reunify with Taiwan. But I guess my point, I'm not a Taiwan expert at all or cross-straits relations expert, but that's always predicated on a stated desire for peaceful unification and some of the other core tenets of China's stance over the last 70 years were restated. Uh, and yet it seemed like we zeroed straight in on the one bit that said, but we never rule out the use of force. From your perspective, was there anything new this time round? Or, or did you actually see it as largely a restatement of an approach that's been there for decades? Yeah, so I think leading up to the Congress, there was Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and then there was the military exercises and uh, the strong rhetoric uh, from China and also from the US. And so there was that heightened tension. And so people were looking very, very carefully about what would be said about Taiwan. I, I think you're right. I saw um, no real change in terms of Beijing's position on Taiwan. They've been very consistent. There was not ruling out the use of military force, but of course that's been said before. Uh, in, in fact, they have an anti-succession law, uh, which came about when uh, Chen Shui-bian was, was in power in Taiwan, uh, and there were more independence-leaning people in Taiwan then. I think the only thing that I sort of saw that was new was this idea that they needed to 
resolutely oppose uh, independence forces and also foreign interference, which could be some sort of reference to perhaps things like Nancy Pelosi visiting or, or sort of the sort of slowly changing international media and analysts' arguments about Taiwan. But no, I think it was just the, the same very strongly worded position that the PRC sees unification with Taiwan as part of its long-term objective. Look, um, Jason, thank you so much again for taking time out to have a chat. So I think it's good to to know the macro uh, environment now and again to be able to then look at these political meetings next March and see how some of these themes come out again and are restated again and are integrated into Chinese government policy. Really appreciate it and I uh, hope we'll have a chance to chat like this for these key events coming up in future as well. Thanks very much, Alistair. And I too enjoyed the conversation and look forward to the next one. Many thanks to Jason Young for taking the time to talk to us. For more podcasts, please follow us on Apple Podcast, SoundCloud and Spotify, or check out our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Thanks for listening.